So the other day I was um, just flipping through my Facebook and um, just reading articles that kind of caught my attention. And I noticed uh, this, this artist's rendition of this uh, little boy uh, face down in the sand. I didn't really, you know, know what was going on. So I just kind of curiously just looked at it and read a little bit about it. And I found out it was a kid that had drowned. And so it, you know, piqued my curiosity uh, because it started to kind of show up all over my Facebook. And so as I was reading more and more articles, I just kind of found out that there was this kid who, with his parents, were fleeing Syria. And they got in this rickety old boat and they were sailing across the Mediterranean and the boat flips. This boy just washed up, you know, with his uh, older brother who was five years old and and a bunch of other immigrants. um, And this caught the whole, you know, world's attention and it started blowing up all over my Facebook. I just saw, you know, this story over and over again. There was this real gut-wrenching story that was told by um, the aunt of the boy that was washed up. And uh, she goes into detail um, about what had happened because her brother was was there in the the water. And and talks about how he lost both sons and uh, how he was trying to save their life. And and, uh, they both drowned one at a time and how he tried to go and uh, rescue his wife and she had drowned and just lost everything trying to flee from Syria. Muslims, Christians, and the, the zombie. zombie apocalypse. Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse. And the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> so the photo of this young boy lying face down in the beach, it's hard to ignore. And it brings to the forefront the realities of the Syrian crisis. And so a lot of countries have started to respond and this whole idea of immigration and refugees and uh, do we open borders, do we keep borders closed, has just blown up around the globe. And America is not immune to this. This is something that is being discussed in our own country, and Christians are right at the forefront with some pretty uh, diverse opinions regarding immigration. Right. There's people that think it's uh, we have to do it, you know. Uh, there's this one article I think that uh, was really, um, really poignant about uh, what they, what they feel, and you know, basically the title is, you know, like Christian politicians uh, won't say it, but the Bible is clear: let the refugees in, every last one. You know, and then on the other side, you got like guys like uh, Franklin Graham, right? Yeah, he he took a pretty strong stance in Facebook a few weeks back regarding. Uh, closing the borders right. for particularly Muslims. I think that the Christian community is far more open to the idea of allowing Christian immigrants to come in, but when it comes to Muslims, it gets a little bit uh, dicey, right. divided. 
and that's not even just the U.S. I mean, uh, there's ref- there's all these articles on uh, online that are popping up talking about how um, people are in the Euro- in European the European Union are more likely to accept Christians than Muslims um, ref- uh, fleeing from Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. It's pretty interesting. Um, but I have an interesting article here. This is by the L.A. Times, in case you guys were wondering. But uh, it talks about what countries are, are receiving Syrian re- refugees and, and how much. So the country of Lebanon, 1.1 million refugees. Jordan, 1.4. Jordan is always right up there, man. Yeah, man. 1.4 million Syrians. Uh, Turkey, uh, 1.9 million. Whoa. Um, but I think it's it's uh, partly because their proximity. You know, right. Um uh, Qatar, UAE, and Saudi Arabia have been criticized because they haven't taken any. Um, Greece has taken uh, hundreds I, of thousands. I'm wondering. I'm wondering though, are they writing some hefty checks? And that's sort Actually, of the, that's their that's their way of getting out of it, right? If right. we write a big check, then we don't have to take a lot of uh, immigrants, right? It, it does actually mention that it says the nations <laughs> have contributed to humanitarian <laughs> aid some generously. Um, Italy, 110,000. The U.S. has given 4.1 billion since 2012, when the the, the Syrian civil war began, and uh, they've only received 1,500 refugees. And, and I would I would suspect that that's going to increase in years to come. But it, again, it's a dividing it, it's a divisive issue. Um, do you have Franklin Graham's quote there on his Facebook? Because I'd hate to misquote him, but he, he publicly had stated some stuff regarding uh, what to do. Right, and this, and this, uh, this, yeah, resembles what the article saying too. It says, "But we are under attack by Muslims at home and abroad. We should stop all immigration of Muslims to the U.S. until this threat with Islam has been settled." And then he he kind of referenced, you know, we didn't allow uh, Japanese immigration, <laughs> right? Um, you know, or German immigration um, during the World War. So. You know that kind of is the precedent that he's he's mentioning, but there are other times in our own history where certain groups of people were not uh, allowed to immigrate, or people were trying to keep them from immigrating. Particularly, uh, church and state uh, religious folks like Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of bringing Catholics to the United States was highly frowned upon early in immigration in the United States. Right, afraid they would uh, take over and make it uh, part of. Uh, I guess some kind of theocracy with the Catholic Church, but uh, I, I've known quite a few Catholics, and they're very nice people, and seem to be <laughs> contributing quite well to the United States. Yeah. So it's a bit bizarre now. We look back and we think it's kind of wow, how did we do that? But uh, there are some that still want to, particularly, not allow some folks in. And you know, I can't help but think about to the you know, give me your tired, your poor, your your huddled masses yearning to breathe free in like the Statue right. of Liberty, and then, but. We need to add on there so long as you're part of the right religion or uh, political persuasion. Right. Because we do, you know, that is a, an ongoing fear of a lot of people. And, and that is exactly why it's so complicated. U.S. officials say the country is looking for ways to improve its response to the crisis. But there's this huge vetting and screening process because they're trying to keep out terrorism operatives. And so the deal is because things are so complicated with um, certain Muslim groups, right, mm-hmm. um, it makes it difficult for everyone uh, but of course germany now has made huge huge headline headlines just this weekend um, by allowing twenty thousand syrian um immigrants or, or refugees in in this last weekend Twenty thousand. that's shocking because it was only about five years ago when chancellor merkel had said that uh this idea um 
she was talking about a kind of cultural um oh what was the word that she used multicultural multiculturalism she she had said and it wasn't just her there were others as well i believe david cameron was on the same sort of uh the slogan was basically that multiculturalism has failed Hmm. And that, that Germany was dealing with a problem of Muslim immigrants and what do they do? They, had, uh, they didn't know um, this idea of how do we deal with the fact that some of our people that are immigrating here could be terrorists, they could be not right. for German values and right. so on and so forth. And so I'm really actually encouraged that, that Germany has kind of um, shifted its uh, stance on this and is opening their, their borders. Fantastic. The, yeah, what's cool is that the people, um, although there's been some, you know, like um, demonstrations, but they're, you know, small, but the vast majority, it says, are trying to do their best to welcome and cheering. And it's it's quite moving looking at the images and stories that are kind of coming through that this last weekend. And they even went afar, as far as uh, to say that they're able to accept a half a million refugees a year for the next Whoa. few years. Half a million. Now, that's Germany which is uh, very, very different than some of these other countries that are um, doing the exact opposite. Uh, one that we had looked at on the LA Times article was saying that Hungary actually began to erect a border fence um, mm. and has been you know, drawing criticism. And, and that is interesting because the whole world kind of weighs in when countries don't do their part or they say something like, you know, like we need to, you know, human values and or uh, human rights and all that kind of stuff. And then we don't end up doing anything. So, I mean, even the U.S. has received a lot of criticism, even though they gave four point one billion since 2012. It's uh, it's only received fifteen hundred refugees. And so they've received a lot of criticism for that. Hmm. I I saw an interesting film the other day, Howard. Uh, so. My wife likes to choose films based on uh, Rotten Tomatoes yep. or IMBD, how many uh, ratings. Yep, and me percentage. too. Do you really? Yep. See, I, I, you don't even know these people. I just though. don't like to waste my time. Okay. Well, anyway, she picked one. It had like 98%, if you can imagine. I've okay. never seen a film with this many high reviews. And I had never heard of the film, which in right. my mind was screaming like strange film festival film. Yeah, you used to criticize me a lot because I'd be like giving you artsy movies. And- <laughs> well, I'm about to give one to all you uh, listeners out there that you probably should watch, actually. It was called White God. That's the name of the film, White God. Okay. And <laughs> Wait, where did you see this? No, it was on Netflix. Okay, Netflix. All right. Netflix, you should be a sponsor because you're getting a little promo here. Um, <laughs> so on a Netflix film, White God, the movie begins unlike any movie I've ever seen, which was basically in a bunch of strange names that I could hardly pronounce. And there was no sort of uh, intro to the movie. It just kind of started. And the next thing I know, I look over at my wife and I say, if this is in subtitles, I'm going to bed. And the first thing that comes up is subtitles. And I was like, <laughs> no. She's like, give it a chance, give it a chance. So, okay. Now, the reason I think it probably deserves its 98% is this is one of the few movies, Passion of the Christ being the other one, that I have survived the entire thing while reading subtitles. Oh, man. So, the basic premise of the movie is there's this young girl, teenage girl. She has this dog. And the neighbor finds out that she has this dog. She's staying with her father, parents divorced. And uh, the neighbor comes over and says, I saw that dog. And he's like, what dog? And the next day, the police show up and they say, is it true you have a mixed breed dog in here? And he says, no, I have no dog. And they basically go on and on about how if you have a mutt, a mixed breed dog, a non-pure Hungarian dog, you will have to pay the extra tax. What? Yeah, it was very interesting. So So, I'm assuming this is in Hungary? Yes. 
Okay. And so there's all of this uh, stuff that goes on. Eventually, the father gets rid of the dog. The dog goes out, and there's this whole gang of mixed breed dogs out in the streets, just kind of running and taking over the town, right? Because nobody's owning them, so they don't have to pay a fee. No one owns them. All their owners have gotten rid of them because they don't want to pay extra money to have these dogs, and they're kind of taking over the town. Weird. Okay, keep going. What happens, essentially, um, they treat these dogs horribly and so on and so forth, and then eventually the dogs rise up, and then it gets a little bit violent, kind of Cujo reminiscent. Wait, what? No, serious. They rise up against the people. Against the people and start enacting revenge and all this terrible stuff starts happening and of course now I'm really into the movie like what is going on I was thinking this is a Hungarian type of Cujo movie and uh, by the end of the movie I looked over at my wife and I said you know I think a lot of people are going to think this movie is about animal rights I said I don't think that's what it's about I said I think this movie is about immigration And this was weeks ago. And my wife kind of looked at me and was like, huh? Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so this wasn't something that was ob- obvious. It was, you really, it was really about a dog and a dog rebellion? It was obvious to me because that's what I'm interested in. Right. I thought maybe I'm just one being very postmodern here and sort of reading my Meta. own interpretation in there. Right. <laughs> I don't care what the author had in mind. It's what I feel right now, and it's about immigration. <laughs> so I go and I start reading a bunch of reviews on the movie, and sure enough, it's all about uh, animal rights. And I guess <laughs> I missed that one. But then I get to the director's interview, and it's about immigration. No. Yes. And I was like, yes! <laughs> Nailed it. Um, so the, the the director must be a little bit peeved that everyone's like, <laughs> well, yeah, because everybody's seeing it's a movie about dogs. Yeah, it's not a movie about dogs. It's a movie about this xenophobia, this idea that it's one particular race and you're afraid of everything else and you're afraid of anybody that's not like you. And this is not an inherently uh, religious problem. This isn't. Uh, a Muslim problem, this isn't a Christian problem, this isn't a a white problem, black problem, Asian problem. Uh, When you're dealing with race and ethnicity and religion, um, you you can kind of categorize and say it's a this problem or this problem, but really Mm -hmm. this is a human problem. Problem, 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 problem. This has been going on from the very beginnings, and this has roots that go all the way back into Scripture and even roots that go all the way back to, I believe it was Plato was the first one to put something in uh, writing um, outside of the Bible about this idea of acculturation. And when they didn't want people to travel outside of the the Greek world because Mm -hmm. they didn't want them to be like others. Right. And so there's that whole concept. This is inherently a human problem. Yeah. It's very much, uh, you know, we see that, of course, because um, in my church, we have a lot of immigrants and they want their kids to stay, you know, super Korean. I guess super Korean would be like Korean Korean, like in, in, in Korea. And it's very difficult because of enculturation. You know, these mm-hmm. kids go to American schools and the parents don't like it. They don't like the what, what's happening to their kids. Their kids don't speak English well or if they do, they have an English accent or American accent, I guess. I, I don't know what that would be called, but... If you go to an American public school and come back with a British English accent. Right. Or an Aussie accent. No, that would Aussie be accent. Be, yeah. You have to try hard. So we got to talk about this concept of immigration. What does the Bible actually have to say? Yeah. Um, do we have a responsibility? Is there a biblical or is there a theological uh, connection with immigrants, with foreigners uh, in the Bible? Yeah. Or do you really have to stretch to make the Bible talk about this? And I, I would say that it is throughout the Bible. 
Yeah, and see, that's the thing is that we just don't... I guess as Americans, we're naturally a far away from others except for maybe like Mexico and Canada. It's tough to say because uh, when you read it, I, for me, just to be honest with you, I just my mind doesn't click onto those those segments that talk about refugees. You know mm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or the foreigner <clears throat> or hospitality. Well, hospitality a little bit. We live in the South. But you, you get what I'm saying. Like it, My mind just doesn't click. So when you say that, I'm like, okay, it could be. It could be all over the Bible, but I'm just not sure. So Chris Wright... Um he uh, wrote the uh, book, um, The Mission of God, and it's a nice, real thick book on missions. That's how you know it's good. He, yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, he's got a killer British accent when he speaks. So, nice. um, But the whole concept of is there a missional basis of the Bible or is there a biblical basis for missions? That's kind of the question that he's asking. Okay, explain that, that because my mind just kind of because the biblical basis for missions. Well, there's a biblical basis for a lot of things. There's a biblical uh, basis for marriage. Like is it one there's of those? Th- is it one of the aspects that the Bible addresses? And he okay. wants to shift that thinking into saying, no, there's a missional basis for the Bible. That so the we foundation of the Bible is missions. And that we wouldn't have a Bible if we didn't have a mission, because the Bible is actually sort of the articulation of God accomplishing His mission. So right mm. there at the very beginnings. Genesis chapter 12, even before Genesis chapter 12, you have Babylon, right? Right. The Tower of Babel. They're, they're, they're building the Tower of Babel. They speak one language, and they're wanting to make a name for themselves, build this tower up to heaven, and God comes down, and he scatters them and scatters their languages. And then you have uh, different cultures, different areas, different uh, languages. That's there in the Table of Nations, Genesis uh, chapter 10 and 11. Right. Genesis 12, you have Abraham being called to be an immigrant. Right. God's calling him out and saying, leave your country, leave your family, go to the land I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Now, at that point in time, it wouldn't have been that odd to have had this encounter with this God that says, I want to bless you. A lot of people are having encounters with a lot of gods that want to be blessed by God. But the difference between the God of the Old Testament there with Abraham is that he says, I want to bless you. And I also want to make you a blessing to all nations. And mm. that word there, that I think, let me get my Hebrew cap on to get uh, a yeah. Hebrew professor in here, is mishpaha. I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> I, knew, I was just looking at your face. I can face. neither confirm nor deny. I took Greek. <laughs> so that, fa- that, that word there means families, uh-huh. tribes, um, the clans. It's, it's all the families, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Mm. And if you think of that in Genesis chapter 12, what theologian John Stott calls uh, perhaps the most unifying verse in all of Scripture, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Yeah. If you think of that in terms of that's the thesis statement of the Bible, that's the sort of outline of what God's about to do, then when you read the Bible with that missiological lens, reading the Bible as though you're looking to see, okay, what does the Bible say if I have that lens of missions on, then those verses about the foreigner, the stranger, the nations come way out of the text. Yeah, you're right. They like jump right off the pages. It means something totally, yeah, it's much more poignant. It's like, hey, focus, look at this, this is really important. So think about, for instance, right after Genesis 12, Mm -hmm. you have that, uh, you know, going into Exodus. And then the, when, when they're in Exodus, you have a problem uh, in Egypt. It's an immigration problem. Mm. Think about it from the Pharaoh's perspective. The right. Jews are becoming too many. Right. And so he comes up with a plan to deal with this problem of immigration. Right. Remember? Mm-hmm. Make them work harder. As far as the midwives go, as soon as their babies are born, do what with them? Kill them. 
this is this is a human problem. Yeah. It's not a new one. But God and his you know, faithfulness, these midwives, they're like hiding babies, you know, <laughs> right, sending right. them down rivers. Uh. <laughs> I, I forgot what they called them. These women are too robust or something like that. <laughs> vigorous, vigorous. vigorous. They birth these babies so right, fast that right. before we can even get there. Right. Um, so they start hiding babies. Yeah. And so eventually uh, God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, but it doesn't do it for the Israelites' sake. That's what's. That's where we miss it. Yeah. He does it for his own name's sake. That's what the psalmist says. He delivers them for his name's sake because he wants them to go out from the land of Egypt and worship him. And who leaves Egypt? It's a mixed multitude. It's Egyptians. It's Israelites. It's a mixed multitude. And they all go out into the desert and they receive the law, and right there written within the law is, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you yourselves were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I don't know. Like for me, like I guess when we talk about um, refugees coming into the U.S., I would never just think, "Oh yeah, that's my brother." Mm. You, you get what I'm saying? Like it, you just think, "Wow, they're really different." I remember when we were in Jacksonville, Florida, and we were a part of a church, and they had all these uh, Sudanese refugees kind of came into the community into that church, and uh, you know, we gathered around and loved them, but like there was just this real stark difference like we felt like they were very different than us you know different culture mm-hmm. um but skin color actually you know because uh that church was predominantly white and um i don't know like and then hearing this it's like wow even even just in the in acting like or even loving them like a brother is is something that seems foreign yeah i mean think about it. if you're a farmer you're not supposed to pick up the fruit that's fallen to the ground right you're supposed to leave it yep. for the refugee. Yep. Or the corners. That's right. The corners the as, you're, field, as right? you're clearing the field, you're supposed to leave it. And we see that in the in the book of Ruth as well. Yeah. Um, talking about even Jesus talking with uh, uh, treating uh, when he says, I was I was hungry and you fed me. I was uh, yeah. thirsty. You gave me something to drink. Mm-hmm. I was a stranger and you invited me in this right. concept of the stranger showing the hospitality of the stranger. Cause maybe you've entertained an angel, yeah. you know? And so what's really ironic in all of this is that, um, Islam for the most part, I haven't been to every Muslim country in the world and I don't want to overgeneralize, but I would, I would argue that Muslims have a greater sense in general um, with this idea of hospitality. Now, yeah. Christians in the Middle values. East, Christians in the Middle East value this as well. But I'm talking about Christians here um, in our country. I don't think this is something that we have really saw in the Scripture and really value and have really poured into um, in the discipleship process. Right, honoring the stranger, welcoming the stranger, caring for the foreigner, loving the refugee. Right. We miss it sometimes. Not sometimes, a lot of times. I was and trying I, to be grace, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think that uh, it's one of those questions like how much of culture influences our response, or how much does the Bible influence our culture? For us Christians that uh, you know grow up uh, in the U.S., we should we should be the f- you know farthest. We should be the most you know uh, hospitable people um, around. But very much, we just kind of end up being just like everybody else, which is interesting. 
there's not much difference. It's not exceptional. It's not extraordinary. It's so just, th- yeah. I, I was teaching this in a class, and this uh, we were talking about Jesus being in the temple, overturning tables and mm-hmm. fashioning a whip, and being angry. Oh right, because of the way they were acting in the temple, and how the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. The nations, Isaiah forty nine, yeah, right? That just hit me because they're there in the Gentile courts where they're selling the sacrifices right. because they weren't allowed to bring their own sacrifices, and they had to change money there, yeah. and they were ripping off the foreigner. Right, they were using them, and Jesus exploiting is them, enraged by the way that the foreigner is being treated because he has right there in the temple discussed how the foreigner is to be welcomed in. And we see that even in the construction of the temple, that they build the temple with the foreigner in mind. Yeah. That there's a, a place for the foreigner. We see that even in the Old Testament. And it's kind of funny because like as you bring up the, all these things, my mind is just going click, click, click. Like everything's kind of clicking into place. It's it's uh, It uh, especially seems poignant because of today, what we're talking about with the, with the refugees and our, and our response, right? Regardless of our government, right, um, as Christians, um, it's, it seems like the Bible is clear on the direction that we need to be going, right? I think so. I mean, even if the government doesn't do anything, it doesn't change the fact that we as believers should. Right. And there are refugees still. I mean, in the, in the U.S., I mean, there's 1,500 Syrian, but there's uh, refugees all over the place. Remember that uh, apartment complex you were telling me? They were uh, Bhutanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, From all over. Right. And then, yeah, you meet up with all these kind of uh, interesting people anywhere you go. All right. So this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you You want to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you. Bring this show to the world. Then email us and let us know. Well, I was meeting with one guy from Afghanistan, and he was explaining to me about hospitality in his own culture. He's uh, from uh, a, a group called the Pashtun, which mm-hmm. is a large tribal group. Right. And if you saw the film, uh, what was that film? Where American Sniper. Oh, no, not no. that. It was the first one, uh, Lone Survivor. Lone Survivor. Right. If you saw Lone Survivor, you got to see this uh, played out with this concept of Nanawate, the, if, a, if a stranger comes to your home. And then it doesn't even matter. And I've heard this explained from so many different folks, and not only Pashtun, but also a few Arabs um, from other groups as well, tribal groups, where they would say, if you come to a person's home and you ask for asylum, if you ask them to protect you, if you ask them to bring you in as a guest, they have to bring you in and treat you better than they would treat their own family. And that everyone else in the village should understand that he is a guest, he is under your protection, and therefore God's protection. And so they would treat you as though literally you're a guest from God. It's straight biblical, the concept of treating you as you might be an angel. Hmm. I mean, it's amazing. And so they would tell stories of how this came to be. And I've heard other Arabs talk about, you know, if you come in and you hold the tent stake and uh, ask for protection, they'll protect you. Even if you've done a crime against someone in their own family, they have to protect you. Whoa. Yeah, no doubt. Like there's a there's a old story where a guy comes in, he grabs the tent pole in the middle and he asks for protection. The owner of the tent says, I'll give it to you. And then the people gather around and they say, well, have you seen this man? We're out for him. And he says, uh, yeah, but he's in my home. He's asked for protection I'm providing. And they say, yeah, but he has killed your son. And he says, well, he is now my son. I'm offering him protection. That's like an old story that exists within some of these cultures that they would protect them in that way. That's how much the stranger would mean. Yeah, that's... That's completely foreign. 
<laughs> to me, like, I would not even be able to comprehend that. But if you think about that story of Lot and the angels, uh-huh. when they are strangers and they're there at the city, right? Uh, sort of the city. S- send city. the men out so we can have sex with them. Yes. Right. Think about that in that context. Whenever yeah. he's there, there's these strangers. He goes out and we're thinking, so who shows up to a town and literally just looks for a place to stay? Right. Well, that would work actually in a lot of places in the world today. You could show up and say, I'm a stranger looking for a place. Yeah. Somebody would take no, you no, in. No, that's happened to me, yeah. So if you think about it, they're there, they're strangers, he takes them in, and then all of the men from the village show up and they say, send out the guys because right. we want to do what we want with them, right? We want right. to have sex with them. And, and, and Lot is just appalled. Right. And he offers his what? Daughters. Now, I think we totally misread this verse. We read this verse and think, dude. Abuse. What is wrong with Lot? Right. What a, you know... A few choice words for Lot right now, thinking about offering his own daughters. Mm -hmm. Who are virgins. Who are virgins, right. Right. But if you look at it from an honor-shame context, do you think that the village would be okay with raping his daughters? Of course not. They would never do that. They're living in an honor-shame culture. They're there in the middle, and him offering his daughter is, is a way of saying, you shameless men. How dare you want to take advantage of a guest? Here, take my daughter. Are you that shameless? Why don't you take her? Right. And it changes the whole perspective on the story. That's how valuable the stranger was. He was saying, take my daughters. That's how important this guest is. He is like my child. You know this. You wouldn't take my daughter. You're going to take my my guest. Are you crazy? It changes the whole perspective. Yeah. But that didn't snap him out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yes, but the angel of the Lord is uh, capable of, of uh, changing the hearts of people. <laughs> or body molecular structure. <laughs> <laughs> so all I'm saying is that we have to get on board with what the Lord's doing when it comes to migration, lest he send the angel of the Lord to yeah. uh, correct us. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about that, but, but just, the, just the idea like um, Gamaliel, uh, when uh, the apostles were arrested, right, and... Um, he takes the, the, the council aside, the, the priests aside, and he says, hey, you know, if this is not from God, right, then it'll blow over. It'll become nothing. But, you know, if, if it is from God, you know, beware because you might find yourself fighting against God. You know, we see that in history. People have uh, opposed things that the Lord is doing, um, not realizing that they were actually fighting against God. You know, and I think for me, if we see in Scripture how clear it is, you know, the refugee, the foreigner, the, the brother, um, the hospitality, um, then it's dangerous, I think, for us to pretend ignorance or to say that that's not true, just you know, to cherry-pick what we want from the Bible. Um, because ultimately, when it comes down to you know, standing before our Creator, you know, we have to take account. You know, I, <laughs> that sheep and the goats that you, um, that you quoted before you know, in Matthew, the the story of the sheep and goats that terrifies me all the time. It's like how many times have I like turned away somebody, or how many times that I did not care or love, you know? Because it's uh, you know in this day and age with social media, dude, I am over, I am inundated with crisis, 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 crisis all over the world, all over my friends, all, I mean everywhere. And, you know, I just have too many Facebook friends that you know are going through stuff, and they post it on there, and then you got news, and then the world, and and I'm just like, man, I you know I'm failing at everything. I don't, I just don't have that emotional capacity. You know, but at the same time, it's like, is it really that I don't have emotional capacity? Obviously not to every crisis, right? But is my heart that hardened 
um, that I can't be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and what He's asking of me and how how I can how can I how I can respond. It's tough for me, you know. I think that's one of the dangers of social media. Yeah, you don't have social media, so it, well, know. it's it's you see a picture and there's no context, right? And it's a it's just there's no proximity, there's no relationship. You don't know any of the people, and it's just like oh, one more tragedy, right? And you become numb. I rem- I'm reminded of the film. Uh, What's the with the Rwandan genocide? Hotel Rwanda. And you have, uh, I believe it's Joaquin Phoenix, who's one of the cinematographers right. who's filming the genocide. And in walks the hotel manager, Paul, and he sees some of the footage they have from the day where these right. people being brutally murdered. And they notice that he's standing there and they says, says turn it off, turn it off. Um, I'm so sorry that you saw that. And he said, no, it's okay. I'm glad you're filming this because I want the world to see. Then yeah. the world will act. And Joaquin Phoenix says something that is absolutely chilling. Yeah, he says, I'm afraid that people will see this on the news and they'll say, wow, that's terrible. And then they'll go back to eating their dinner. And we cannot, cannot be those kinds of people. We have to actually see people the way that God sees them, see the world the way that God sees the world, and realize that God operates through immigration and migration of his people, that it was God's plan to exile the Israelites into Babylon. It was part of God's plan to spread them out all throughout the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for Jonah at that moment. So God (laughs) preserves the Assyrian Empire in Nineveh, and then God uses the Assyrian Empire as a rod of his anger, and God spreads the Israelites out through the Babylonian exile. And then guess what? In Acts chapter 2, he brings what he says is men from every nation under heaven so that they might hear the gospel. Right. You have to see that uh, if God has preserved this nation here, and that 72% of the people in this nation call themselves Christians, it just might be that God wants to bring the foreigner here so that they might hear about the love of Jesus. Right. I hope we're not the kind of place that forgets that. Yeah, I I think our natural gut... Uh, reaction is to be defensive and to back up and say no 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 this will this will ruin everything this will change everything and what about all the muslims they're all coming and you know we allow this fear to kind of kick up in our head uh, but when you see you know like what you're talking about in acts 2 like it's it's really clear that god had a plan like you think that all of the um, exile all those other things you know were terrible horrible things but it's like god was like positioning everything for this one moment that at Pentecost, when they go out and they start preaching in all these different languages and these Jews hear the gospel, right? But from they're from all these different nations. And then they go back after, after Pentecost to their home nations that the gospels spread so far in just one moment, yep. you know? And then uh, you see all these articles online about in Germany, there's this Protestant uh, pastor who's um, um, baptizing and all these converted uh, Muslims that are coming from Iran and Afghanistan. And, you know, some people are like, well, you know, we don't know how serious they are or what, you know, uh, if this is genuine or not. But that's not for us to say. The fact of the matter is we know that when when Muslims come amongst us as Christians and they encounter Jesus through our lives, that there is life change, you know. And, uh, And I think that's something that we have to think about, not this, you know, default of fear or panic, you know, but to remind self-preservation. Exactly. And, but remembering, you know, what God has put us on earth for, 
you know, to bring him glory. And, and th- I, I mean, I don't know if there's any other way. You have this family, this Syrian family that comes, a refugee, has no money, has nothing, um, no future prospects. They come to a foreign land, don't speak the language, and then all of a sudden they are greeted by an army of Christians. I mean, I don't see how that could not change somebody, you know? And I know it's not easy. It's not pretty, you know, like me and my wife, you know, we don't have um, a lot of the same experiences that Trevor and his wife do with uh, uh, with refugees and, and Muslim friends. He has neighbors that are Muslims. You know, I'm look, I'm still looking for Muslims around my my neighborhood. <laughs> There's none <laughs> at this point. Um, but, you know, we're, my wife was praying because our next door neighbor uh, moved out. And she's like praying, oh, Lord, Lord, put a Muslim family in right next door. <laughs> she's really praying this. Don't tell, don't tell the other neighbors right. that you're praying. It could cause problems in the neighborhood. Right. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean that we don't have that that responsibility and not even just responsibility, but privilege. Absolutely. You know, like it's a beautiful thing to be able to, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to somebody that maybe have never experienced that before in their life. I I think Howard from my end, I I want to close with the idea of being a Royal priesthood. Mm. And that's what Israel was to be to the nations. They were to be a light to the nations. They were to be a chosen people set aside for God's purposes. They were to build a temple where the foreigners would come from all over the nations to see who God was and to praise him. And that the things that he was doing, although Israel got the benefit, it was always for his namesake that the nations might hear about God. When Daniel is in exile, Mm. he is, uh, King Darius writes a decree that all the nations hear about the God of Daniel. And then when uh, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, they refuse to worship, right? Right. The king of Babylon writes a decree that all the nations might hear. When David uh, destroys Goliath, he, well, cuts his head off. It's quite violent, actually. But he says this day that all the nations might know about the God of Israel. There's a God in Israel. (laughs) That's right. The the whole time, right? In Nineveh, you have Jonah preaching to the Ninevites. And then you also have the sailors there, the pagan sailors, recognizing the God of Israel. And so all of these moments, building all the way up until this modern day, we have 1 Peter 2, uh, 7 uh, through 10 where he says you're a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into marvelous light we, we are called to be that priesthood and now we have the opportunity to be that priesthood to the nations and mm-hmm. God's bringing the nations to us Yeah, and that's our responsibility to be the one that reconciles them to God through love through care be, be Jesus to them. That's it from uh, Trevor and Howard. Uh, keep listening. Keep writing reviews on iTunes. Um, we really appreciate you guys. Um, thanks, and we'll see you next week.